Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for May 2014. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we have a look back at the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month. Let's start with an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, Resuvastatin for Sepsis Associated Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. So ARDS is contributed to by inflammation, statins attenuate inflammation, and although the statins in sepsis trials have not been particularly promising, with the exception of the potential use of continuing statins in current users, it seems reasonable to explore the hypothesis that giving statins early in ARDS may have benefit. This prospective RCT enrolled 745 mechanically ventilated patients with ARDS criteria who had this for less than 24 hours and they were randomized to resuvastatin, a 40 milligram load, then 20 milligrams daily with renal dose adjustment or placebo until day three post ICU discharge or 28 days. And they report that the study was stopped at 745 of a planned 1,000 patients by the DSM for futility. The patients received the study drug for a median of 9 days. The median peak range of statin measured in the blood of the participants was 7.3 nanograms per mil. Now the target range is 10 to 70 nanograms per mil, so they were unable to achieve target. The primary outcome, which was hospital mortality, there was no difference. It was 28.5% with statins versus 24.9% with placebo. There was also no difference in ventilator-free days, organ value-free days. There was one less renal failure-free day and one less liver failure-free day uh, associated with statins. So there is potential that possibly there was harm with statins um, on causing hepato and nephrotoxic effects, although arguably one day less may not be clinically significant. There was no difference in ICU free days and there was no increase in rhabdomyolysis of statins. Also there was no difference in the PF ratio uh, in the ARDS patients. There was an a priori stratification by shock at baseline and there was no difference there. There was also a post hoc stratification for de novo versus current statin use and again no difference. So this study reports no benefit, clinical or physiological, from early resuvastatin in ARDS. And the accompanying editorial is informative, talking about discovery in practice and is the money spent on negative trials looking for new uses of commonly used drugs worth it? And I quote, We needed to bridge the gap between information gleaned by deduction from observation, that is something we thought was working, and information gleaned from interventional experimentation, something we know works, or in this case does not work. It would have been a big mistake to accept the findings without a test. And what they're saying is that it is important to have these negative studies of widely used interventions. The next study takes us in a very different direction, and this is the Continuous Renal Replacement Therapy in Neonates and Small Infants, Development and First Inhuman Use of a Miniaturized Machine, the Carpe Diem study. So this study, published in Lancet, 
looks at the first human use of a specifically built continuous renal replacement therapy device for neonates and small infants. So we are told that peritoneal dialysis is the renal replacement therapy of choice in infants and that continuous renal replacement therapy in neonates is well in its infancy due to a historically low incidence of acute kidney injury in this population. However, increasing recognition of this disease and the inadequacy of modified adult devices where they adapt the software and the circuit um, but still can only manage to get down to about 15 kilos have led the authors to develop a new device for neonates and infants and the article tells us the details of it. Um, the specs, it, it has a prime volume of 27 mils, um, flows of 5 to 50 mils an hour, scales that are accurate to 1 gram, um, filters that are adjusted for paediatric sizes, it's a VV configuration and with size 4 to 7 French catheters. They trialled it in successfully on a neonate who weighed 2.9 kilos with multi-organ failure and fluid overload for 21 days. Um, so perhaps this is a new device for this population that we'll see more of. Moving on, the efficacy and safety of prone positional ventilation in ARDS, updated study level meta-analysis of 11 RCTs. As we all know, prone positioning has had somewhat of a resurgence, particularly with the PRECEIVA trial last year. This systematic review and meta-analysis examines the evidence comparing mortality with prone versus supine ventilation in ARDS. They identified 11 RCTs with 2,246 patients and found that the pool odds ratio of mortality was 41.5% with prone versus 46.2% with supine. The random effects model the mortality was lower with prone, odds ratio of 0.77, confidence intervals 0.59 to 0.99. That was statistically significant. And also the same effect was found with the fixed effect model. Um, and there was no statistical heterogeneity in either. So that suggests that there is an advantage with prone ventilation. A chronological analysis revealed the effect of proning shifted from negative in the early studies to positive over time. There was a trend to reduced mortality with duration of proning that did not achieve significance. However, studies of proning that was for greater than 10 hours per session showed a significant mortality benefit, while studies where proning was less than 10 hours a session did not, suggesting that duration of proning may matter. There was a significant increase of airway adverse events with proning, but there was no mortality difference associated with that. Um, and finally, the effect of proning is stronger in ARDS studies compared to ALI or combined ALI-ARDS studies. So this will probably confirm the belief that proning is good for believers. I'm not sure it'll convince non-believers. Um, so I guess the question's still up in the air. Moving on. So there were three studies in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and treatments for it. Now you may wonder why this is getting into a critical care podcast, but we deal with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and as most intensivists know, ventilating IPF is a worrying process with bad outcomes. So anything that may 
improve this disease has some bearing on ICU. So the first trial, a randomised trial of acetylcysteine in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. IPF is a chronic progressive lung disease, one of the presentations of idiopathic interstitial pneumonia, and it has a five-year survival of approximately 40%, worse than many malignancies. Unfortunately, therapeutic options that improve survival have been elusive. The Iphigenia study found that a three-drug regimen, prednisone, azathioprine and acetylcysteine, preserved pulmonary function better than a true drug regimen consisting of AZT and prednisone. In Panther IPF, prednisone, azathioprine and N-acetylcysteine, a study that evaluates response in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, patients with mild to moderate impairment in pulmonary function were randomly assigned to receive the three-drug regimen, that is PRED, AZT and NAC, NAC alone with matched placebos, or just placebos. The three-drug regimen was stopped by the DMS due to safety concerns, and after a brief period of interruption with the modification of the protocol and approval by the institutional review boards, patients were continued to be recruited to the NAC group and the placebo group and followed for 60 weeks. This study reports the results of NAC 600mg TDS versus placebo in 264 patients with IPF, mild to moderate pulmonary impairment, which was an FVC greater than 50% and a DLCO greater than 30% predicted, and who met international criteria for IPF, that is, high-res CT and or biopsy. They found that there was no difference in the primary outcome, which was change in FVC over 60 weeks, that 22 to 25% of patients were not adherent. There was no difference in the majority of the secondary outcomes, although there was a trend favouring NAC in the 6-minute walk SF36 and ice cap summary saw. And the overall incidence of adverse events was not different, although there was an increase in cardiac disorders with NAC. So overall, NAC was not better at preventing the progress of IPF, although it did make the patients feel a bit better. So the second study is the IMPULSUS trial, the efficacy and safety of nintetinib in IPF. So nintetinib is an intracellular tyrosine kinase inhibitor, and previous studies have suggested it may reduce pathogenic pathways in this disease and reduce the decline in FVC and improve health-related quality of life. The IMPULSUS 1 and 2 studies were RCTs comparing nintetinib 150mg BD to placebo in 1,066 patients with IPF. And this group were FEC greater than 50%, DLCO 30-70% to predicted, and again HRCT or biopsy confirmed diagnosis. They report that 17.6 to 25.2% were non-compliant with meds. They were similar at baseline, the two groups, and they got approximately 45 weeks of drug exposure. There was a significantly reduced rate of change in FEC in the treatment group of both trials. There was an increase in time to first acute exacerbation with treatment in the second trial, but not the first. And there was also less deterioration in health-related quality of life with treatment in the second but not the first trial. There was no mortality difference. 
there was more diarrhoea and raised LFTs in the treatment group, and there was a similar rate of ischemic heart disease events, but more AMIs in the treatment group. So overall, nintetinib reduced the rate of decline of FVC in IPF, with a trade-off in GIT side effects and a high percentage of AMIs, but still this is a hopeful development in this hard-to-treat disease. And finally, the third trial was the ASCEND trial, a phase 3 trial of perfenadone in patients with IPF. So perfenadone is an oral antifibrotic agent with some previous trials suggesting a reduction in decline in FVC in IPF. The equivocal nature of the data led the US regulatory bodies to request another trial. This RCT compared perfenadone 2,403 milligrams daily to placebo in 555 patients with IPF, FVC 50-90%, DLCO 30-90%, predicted FEV1 FVC greater than 80%, and a 6-minute walk of greater than 150 metres, again confirmed by HRCT or biopsy. They report a 5-6% non-compliance, similar baseline features, a significantly reduced rate of change of FVC in the treatment group, that is, it didn't go down as much, a significantly reduced decrease in 6-minute walk or death with treatment at week 52, and a significantly reduced risk of death or disease progression with treatment. There was no difference in shortness of breath, and there were more GIT and skin adverse events and increased LFTs with treatment. So again, Pethenidone reduced the rate of decline of FVC and IPF, reduced disease progression or death, with a trade-off in GIT and skin side effects. So another positive and hopeful study for IPF sufferers. Moving back into more mainstream critical care, in JAMA we have the optimized study, the effect of a perioperative cardiac output guided hemodynamic therapy algorithm on outcomes following major gastrointestinal surgery, a randomized clinical trial and systematic review. So the use of hemodynamic therapy algorithms to improve outcomes in major GI surgery has been recommended by the US Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and by the UK NICE group, although a recent Cochrane study has suggested benefit may be marginal. The optimized trial was a 17-hospital trial of 734 patients undergoing major GIT surgery of greater than 90 minutes duration in over 65-year-old patients who were at higher risk of cardiac or respiratory disease. Patients were randomized to standard care or an algorithm of IV fluids and inotropes that was cardiac output goal-directed using the LIDCO rapid device, and this continued to six hours post-op. The trial was powered to detect a decrease in the composite outcome of moderate or major post-operative complications and mortality at 30 days from 50% to 37.5%. They found that the Baseline characteristics were similar. There were some differences in fluid delivery. Um, so the intervention received more colloid and the usual care more fluid overall during and after surgery. There was a difference in the use of dopexamine, which was in the protocol, but there was no difference in other vasoactive agents. The primary outcome was 43.4% in the intervention group, 
versus 36.6% in usual care and that wasn't significant although the risk ratio was 0.84 and the confidence intervals were 0.71 to 1.01. Following adjustment for baseline risk factors the treatment effect was non-significant. There was no difference in secondary outcomes and they also incorporated their results into an updated systematic review and meta-analysis and found that the intervention was associated with a clinically important reduction in the number of patients who developed complications after surgery, including post-operative infection and hospital length of stay. So it's a little hard to know what to get out of this trial with the mix of dipexamine, the choice of cardiac output monitor, the composite outcome, the negative result of the trial in contrast to the positive result of the meta-analysis. Either way, for me, it's just not compelling evidence. Let's move on to KIDS, a multinational study of thromboprophylaxis practice in critically ill children. So in critically ill adults, clinical DVT and PE have a frequency of 14.5 per thousand patients despite pharmacological thromboprophylaxis and use of this in adults with no contraindication to anticoagulation being strongly recommended. Multinational surveys suggest about 85% of critically ill patients receive pharmacological thromboprophylaxis. In critically ill children, the frequency of clinical DVT and PE is at least 7.4 per thousand patients, but there is insufficient data to provide specific recommendations for pharmacological thromboprophylaxis in this population, with guidelines based on expert opinion. This prospective, multinational, cross-sectional, observational study describes the use of pharmacological thromboprophylaxis in the ICU population. The current guidelines recommend that the indications are dilated cardiomyopathy, caval pulmonary anastomosis, cyanotic congenital heart disease, end-stage renal disease, or pulmonary hypertension. The contraindications are the usual. And they found that in 2,484 patients in seven countries, 87% had at least one risk factor for DVT. Now over half of these included the presence of a central line as a risk factor, but the median number of risk factors per patient was two, so there was often something else. But only 12.4% of PICU patients and 20.6% of NICU patients received pharmacological thromboprophylaxis. A total of 23.8% of patients over 8 years of age received mechanical thromboprophylaxis. The most commonly used agent was aspirin, which is 46.4%, although in a survey, clinicians thought that low molecular weight heparin was the most commonly used agent. And finally, there was marked variability in practice. So what does this tell us? Well, overall, there is a high prevalence of patients with risk factors for DVT in the paediatric critical care population with a low use of pharmacological thromboprophylaxis and considerable variability. This is not surprising given the lack of high quality evidence in this population which suggests it is time for this to be looked at more thoroughly in a prospective manner. In the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine we have reduction of bacterial resistance with inhaled antibiotics in the intensive care unit. Now this is really interesting. This pilot prospective 
placebo-controlled RCT tests the theory that aerosolized antibiotics, which achieve airway concentrations of a hundredfold greater than MIC, will eradicate multi-resistant bacteria from the proximal airways without leading to systemic toxicity or increased bacterial resistance. So 42 ventilated ICU patients with at least three of the four known risk factors for multi-resistant bacteria, that is one, greater than five days of hospitalization, two, prior use of systemic antibiotics in the past 90 days, three, high frequency of resistance in the patient hospital, and four, immunosuppression, were observed for increased purulent sputum production with organisms on gram stain and a CPIS of greater than or equal to 6. They were then randomized to placebo or aerosolized antibiotics with systemic antibiotics decided by the treating physicians. The aerosolized antibiotic selection was vancomycin if the gram stain was gram positive and gentamicin or amikacin if it was gram negative. They report that the groups were similar at baseline that the aerosolized antibiotic eradicated 26 of 27 bacteria cultured at randomization versus 2 of 23 for placebo. New resistance occurred in 2 of 16 in the aerosolized group versus 6 of 11 in placebo and that was significant. There was a marked reduction in bacterial growth of all cultures during aerosolized antibiotic treatment. None of the treatment patients developed resistance to the aerosolized antibiotic during treatment, and the clinical effects favored aerosolized antibiotics, that is, reduced CPIS, reduced secretions, white cell count, and ventilator days. So overall, this pilot studies shows that aerosolized antibiotics can eliminate the pool of multi-resistant bacteria in the sputum of ventilated ICU patients without causing resistance and with favourable clinical effects. So the authors conclude it is time to test this in a bigger RCT. Moving on to intensive care medicine, the prevalence and impact of frailty on mortality in elderly ICU patients, a prospective multi-centre observational study. So the use of age as a prognostic determinant in critically ill patients is subjective and controversial particularly in an area with an ageing population. Recently, frailty has been introduced, a concept that more accurately identifies patients at a higher risk of dying. This prospective observational study, performed in four ICUs in France, observed 196 ICU patients aged over 65 years of age and hospitalised for greater than 24 hours. They used two frailty definitions. The first is the Frailty phenotype, FP, a biological syndrome resulting from the cumulative decline across multiple physiological systems and contains five criteria, shrinking, weakness, slowness, low-level physical activity and self-reported exhaustion. And patients are considered frail if they have three of the five. The second is the clinical frailty score, the CFS, a multi-dimensional risk state that can be better measured by the quantity rather than by the nature of the health problems. So this is a cumulative deficit model. The CFS ranges from 1, very fit, to 9, terminally ill, 
with frailty ranging from scores of 5 to 8, mild, moderately, severely, and very severely frail. So the patients were considered to be frail when the CFS was greater than or equal to 5. They report that frailty was present in 41% using the frailty phenotype and 23% using the score, with good correlation between the two. Frail patients had a high incidence of severe underlying disorders. Frail patients were more likely to have treatment limitations instituted in ICU. There was no difference in ICU and hospital length of stay between frail and non-frail patients, and frailty was a risk factor for ICU, hospital and six-monthly mortality after multivariate analysis. Finally, age was not a predictive factor for death independently. So what does this mean? Well, possibly with an ageing population in whom decisions about implementation of care based on age alone may not be reasonable, a factor like frailty may be useful and obviously this will need more exploration. Back to critical care medicine, a randomised, double-blind, placebo-controlled dose-range study of dexmedetomidine as an adjunctive therapy for alcohol withdrawal. So approximately 10 to 33% of ICU patients have an alcohol use disorder and are at risk of developing alcohol withdrawal syndrome. This study examines the difference between the traditional use of benzodiazepines to treat this and dexmedetomidine in a single-centre prospective RCT design. So 24 patients with severe alcohol withdrawal syndrome admitted to a medical ICU and receiving intermittent IV lorazepam, which is sliding scale versus using a protocol, were randomised to dex at high dose, 1.2 mics per kilo per hour, low dose, 0.4 mics per kilo per hour, or placebo. And they found that there was a significant decrease in 24-hour lorazepam in the high and the low dose versus placebo. There was no difference in 7-day lorazepam use, no difference in agitation and sedation scales or symptom control, and there was more bradycardia in the DEX group. So there are two ways to interpret this. DEX is as effective as lorazepam in controlling symptoms in severe alcohol withdrawal syndrome, or DEX is more expensive but not more effective. It's up to you. and depends on your own bias. Back to JAMA, the effect of fluconazole prophylaxis on candidiasis and mortality in premature infants, an RCT. So invasive candidiasis has severe effects on preterm infants in ICUs, with 70% of infants with birth weights of less than 1,000 grams dying or developing severe neurodevelopmental impairment despite treatment. Fluconazole prophylaxis have been shown to be a benefit in NICUs with a high rate of invasive candidiasis, but not in NICUs with lower rates. So this prospective RCT randomised 362 infants under 750 grams in 32 NICUs to fluconazole 6 milligrams per kilo or placebo, and they report no difference in the primary composite endpoint of death or invasive candidiasis by day 49. No difference in the after post hoc analysis adjusted for gestational age, caesarean delivery or antenatal steroids. Uh, no difference in mortality. There was less invasive candidiasis candida in the fluconazole group. That's 35 versus 9%. And there was no difference in neurodevelopmental outcomes. So overall, prophylactic fluconazole decreased invasive candidiasis but did not alter mortality 
or other outcomes, raising the question of whether prevention of invasive candidiasis translates into substantial improvements in the outcomes of prematurity. An interesting question. In critical care medicine, we have the effectiveness and safety of the awakening and breathing, coordination, delirium monitoring management and early exercise mobility bundle, the ABCDE. So ICU acquired weakness and delirium represents a serious problem for critically ill patients. We all know that. And there is growing evidence that iatrogenic factors contribute to these conditions. So this prospective before and after study examines the effect of the ABCDE bundle in 269 mechanically ventilated adults in five ICUs in a single tertiary hospital. So what actually happened? So pre-intervention they got usual care including inconsistent um, spontaneous breathing trials, not really coordinated with interprofessional rounding, no delirium monitoring and management, one ICU had the beginnings of an early mobilization program. The post-intervention involved every patient in every unit receiving the ABCDE every day with an opt-out system only available to a licensed prescriber who had to cancel it on a daily basis. It involved coordinated target-based sedation protocols, spontaneous awakening trials, spontaneous breathing trials and early mobilization. They found that the only baseline difference before and after was age, with the before group a bit older. Both groups were lightly sedated at enrolment with a median RAS of minus one and had received similar doses of sedation at enrolment. The post-intervention group had an increase in the primary outcome of ventilator-free days. From 21 days, it increased to 24 days, so three days off a ventilator. That's quite a lot. The post-intervention group had reduced delirium incidence, 48.7% versus 62.3%, and the duration was reduced by one day. This relationship was persistent after multivariate analysis. The post-intervention group had twice the odds of early mobilization, a lower unadjusted hospital mortality, but that was not significant after adjustment, and there was no difference in ICU or hospital length of stay or safety measures. Adherence in the post-group was incomplete, with only 65% of ICU days out of bed, uh, over sedation, persisting, etc. So these results are consistent with studies of the individual components of this bundle and suggest that this could be a valuable tool to improve outcomes of critically ill patients. Back to JAMA and to paediatrics, we have lorazepam versus diazepam for paediatric status epilepticus, a randomized clinical trial. So status epilepticus requires rapid control to prevent brain injury. Diazepam is approved by the FDA for treatment of convulsive status epilepticus, but lorazepam is not, despite proposed potential advantages. This RCT compared lorazepam, 0.1 mg per kilogram IV, to diazepam, 0.2 mg per kilo IV, in 273 pediatric patients aged 3 months to 18 years with convulsive status epilepticus presenting to the ED. If seizures continued at five minutes, a half dose was repeated with phosphenitone administered at 12 minutes. 
They report no difference in the primary outcome, cessation of status for 10 minutes, with recurrence within 30 minutes. There was no difference in the need for ventilation, recurrence within 60 minutes and 4 hours, termination time, and the only statistically significant difference was the incidence of sedation, 50% with diaz and 67% with thoraz, with an absolute risk difference of 16.9%. The authors discuss a number of previous studies with conflicting results and methodological variability and conclude that parenteral diazepam, lorazepam or midazolam are reasonable first-line agents with none superior. Finally, in critical care medicine we have Rehab Interventions for Post-Intensive Care Syndrome, a Systematic Review. So as our attention and understanding of the scope of ICU survivor morbidity grows, so too does the interest in interventions that may reduce the impact of the post-intensive care syndrome. This systematic review and meta-analysis identified 18 studies, of which four were RCTs with 2,510 patients. I identified five areas of intervention, and that was inpatient geriatric rehab, ICU follow-up clinics, outpatient rehab, disease management support services, and ICU diaries. Overall, the ICU diary, still regarded as innovative, has the most impact on mental health outcomes. They conclude that more research in targeted areas is needed designed to overcome heterogeneity, the high attrition rates due to death and dropout, and perhaps focusing on a multidisciplinary specialised rehab program. Well, that's it for Journal Club podcast May 2014. If you want to know more, go to the Critique website and have a look at the articles. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Thank you. Thank you.